Dotnet Rocks episode 691 with guest Lauren Goodman. Recorded live Monday, August 8th, 2011. This episode is brought to you by Telerik and by Franklin's.net, training developers to work smarter. And now offering video training on Silverlight 4 with Billy Hollis and SharePoint 2010 with Sahil Malik. Order online now at franklins.net. And now here are Carl and Richard. Thank you, thank you very much. Welcome back to .NET Rocks. It's Carl, it's Richard. It's good. It's good. Because it's .NET. It's good. <laughs> it's very good. Hey, man, how you doing? Uh, you know, any weekend where I make pulled pork is a good weekend. That's great. That's all I can tell you. I, I, I tweeted the whole darn thing, too, actually. Just sent up photos when I prepped all the meat and put it on. Got some people really jazzed. But, uh, yeah, nine hours in the smoker. Nothing but goodness can come out of that. Speaking of tweets, um, Jim Holmes has tweeted that we're headed back to Code Mash. Yes, right. indeed. Uh, getting our commitments in place for 2012 already. Yep, uh, January 11th through 13th. Do a little code mash, and I suspect there'll be bourbon involved. Sandusky, Ohio. Hey, did you know that the Franklin Brothers Lifeboat to Nowhere is going to be available very shortly? Maybe it is now on iTunes and on Amazon.com for MP3 downloads. Awesome. Yeah. Lifeboat to Nowhere, folks. That's the name of the album from the Franklin Brothers. We don't have our website up yet, and we don't have manufactured discs yet, but we will. But you can get it anyway. You can get it anyway. Hey, it's time for Better Know Framework. Awesome. All right, what do you got? Another HTML tag. Oh, really? HTML5, mm-hmm. that is. This one is interesting because it's only supported in Opera currently. Oh. So why am I even talking about it? Because it's a good tag. (laughs) (laughs) Write your congressman. (laughs) Write your local software company. Uh, It's the data list tag. Oh, okay. Interesting. Yeah, an input element with possible values described in a data list. So it, you know, um, auto-completion. It makes that possible. Um, And. It, what, it. It, what it does is it provides two input points for one form element. One, of course, is the mouse. Um, the second is the keyboard, so you can use autocomplete. And so it's kind of an important thing. But uh, so you you have a text box and you can type and autocomplete, but you can also drop down and pick from the list. Mm-hmm. So it, it's just not supported by anybody but Opera. So get on it, people. Yeah, this too shall pass, I hope. When all I hope browsers so. run all the same things. I mean, for better or worse, going up into HTML5, we're having this browser diversity thing again that really had settled down. Yeah. You know, we sort of took for granted, didn't matter what browser I ran, the web page would work. And that's just sort of gone away now. I'm definitely feeling like I need at least two or three browsers, depending on where I'm going. It's crazy, isn't it? It's a new day and a new weirdness. Richard, who's talking to us? Oh, speaking of weirdness, I got a comment off the website. This is from show 678, and that was the Uncle Bob show. Do you remember doing that one oh, in, yeah. uh, in Norway? We were all a little giddy at we that point. We were punchy. Yeah. yeah, that's the silliest I'd ever seen Bob Martin, <laughs> I swear. Uh, and still, really interesting comment, content, and the comment uh, was is quite serious. Okay. Uh, it's from Taylor. 
Uh, as always, you guys delivered a great show. However, I would like to challenge a comment that was made about using const in C-sharp versus the immutable by default approach that other newer languages have taken. The const keyword does not provide the same level of expression as immutable by default capabilities in newer languages, mainly because const can only be used with built-in types in the CLR, excluding system.object. The only thing that comes close is the read-only keyword, which allows you to mark any field-level variable of any type as read-only. Unfortunately, read-only variables can only be set on instantiation, thereby limiting the developer to setting the value of the read-only field when it is defined on setting in the constructor. Hmm. While you could leverage read-only to build up immutable objects, there are lots of boilerplate that the developer has to write for each new immutable object that they would like to work with. On the other hand, F-sharp, Scala, etc. provide correct size immutable Lego building blocks in the form of basic immutable data structures and language support that makes working with immutability a breeze. Hmm. I, I have no disagreement there you know c sharp predates this whole thing it comes from that from the era of mutability and object orientation which is naturally mutable so mm-hmm. yeah it behaves that way and interesting to see now that our fancy new language which admittedly 10 years old or maybe 11 is uh, is showing its age and incentive we're trying to do things differently and we're struggling with the language whether or not it will evolve into this new style of language as well. It'd be interesting to see. I think it's possible, but I think the underpinnings, the CLR is the more important issue there. Mm. Yes. But Taylor, great thought. And thanks for your comment. We're going to send you a mug and uh, we're looking for more comments like that. So go to rocks.com. Talk to us about what shows you really liked and whether you want more things. You know, I noticed when I was reading through the comments that Julie Lerman gave feedback to every comment on her show. She certainly did. She is so diligent. She's a yep. good community person. Thanks, Julie. Props to Julie and props to our fans. We have we have great listeners. Yeah, we really appreciate the feedback you get, both, both in email, .net rocks at franklins.net, and on comments on the site. You're the reason we do this twice a week. So Absolutely. Keep listening. Thank you. Well, I'm really excited today because our guest is Lauren Goodman, the co-founder and chief technology officer of InRule Technology. Lauren applies his 16-plus years of system architecture and rule development expertise to help organizations deliver critical applications. Lauren's innovative solutions have been recognized by the industry for their forward-thinking approaches and application of technology. He was the lead architect on a solution that won Microsoft's annual Fusion Award and Computer World Magazine named Lauren a Premier 100 IT Leader for his innovative work with new technologies, client challenges, and contributions to a collaborative work environment. He also is a Microsoft MVP. Welcome, Mr. Goodman. Welcome to the show. Uh, thank you. Thank you. Very excited to be here. Very excited to have you. We, we really haven't done a show on, on rules engines per se, have we, Richard? Yeah, I don't think so. I, I was t- thinking about that. And the funny part is that every bit of software has rules. Sure. It's a question of where they are. Yeah, we've we've talked about you know sort of domain driven design ideas in in certainly aspect oriented programming and things that help you focus on those rules, but we never really have gotten into the engine itself. Well, what what is this all about, uh, Lauren? Well, uh, business logic, but at least rule engines uh, initially started out as sort of an academic exercise in a more efficient way to process rules. And they've kind of morphed into a development tool to reduce cost and empower domain experts to maintain their own business logic. Mm. 
So that's that sort of the axiomatic concept here is I want to be able to have non-programmers change the rules. Exactly. And, you know, back in the day, um, you know, this, this used to be really exciting to pitch as, look, we can solve these really complex Rubik's Cube business logic problems. Uh, and that, that never really sold. Uh, but when you say, you know, we can cut your maintenance by 95%, then the Boing. ears perk up and the interest level rises. <laughs> right. Yeah. And it, it really, like Richard said, um, I've always had this dream that you could walk up to a computer someday and have a conversation with it, either with your voice or with, you know, just text and talking or using the user interface, whatever. And, and somebody who understands the rules of a business and an application and what it should do or a piece of an application should be able to just define the rules and then all the other stuff should just happen. Cause so much, you, you know what it's like. So much of what you write code is, uh, just plumbing and UI. Yeah, absolutely. Well, too, you know, it's, it's interesting, and you bring up the text example. Um, right now, my, my messenger slogan is uh, uh, text messaging is the next operating system. Whoa! <laughs> <laughs> but it's really true is that the, the style, are you guys familiar with the Turing test? Oh, yeah. Or uh, artificial intelligence? Sure. Yeah. Okay, so, you know, it's, I, I see text messenger as the best, you know, the best thing to facilitate a Turing test. Mm. Instead of sliding notes under the door, you're sliding text messages between things. Yeah. But I've always wanted to message Citibank and say, what's my balance, and have it tell me. Yeah, that's a good idea. So, and, and also these bots that people write that seem intelligent, you know, they're already there. That You could say they do pass the Turing test. Oh, yeah, definitely. I've met a few people that wouldn't pass the Turing test. <laughs> They failed as a human, you mean? Yeah. I I think it should work both ways. Really smart computers and really dumb people, you know? (laughs) Either way. They're very good. Well, so uh, going on, when you, you, if I could, if I could elaborate on the what's this all about? Yeah. The, uh, you know, one of the, one of the things we do when we sit down and we're going to build a piece of software for someone, I as an architect, first I identify, you know, let's say we're building a point of sale system. And we're, we want to identify, well, what are all the fields you want to edit? You know, what are all the various workflows that take place? Mm. Um, and we really focus on, you know, maybe we have mock-ups of each screen and a walkthrough of every customer experience and every use case. And we put all this energy into specifically defining the data, its structure, how we're going to store it, how we're going to report it, and all of this. And we don't give the same credence to the business logic. Right. And because of that, we've been giving people general tools rather than tools that have been created by developers for a purpose of maintaining business logic. And so you've been, you've, uh, developed tools, obviously in rule. That's what your, your tools do. But what is, what, what do we do without tools? What can we do just in, in terms of architecture to make that easier? You know, that's inter- there's a great uh, great example. So one of the things um, I love to do is harvest uh, development backlogs. So I, I spend a, a small portion of my time with clients hands-on. And by getting a hold of their backlogs, and, and I've yet to go into an insurance company that's spent less than half a million dollars maintaining drop-down boxes. <laughs> Jeez. And you, you come in and say, now, hey, if you just made a little web page on your intranet that people could go edit what's in this box. Right. And then map that to all the various systems that feed it. 
you can save enormous amounts of money. And, and that's something, you know, there's no technology barriers whatsoever to doing no. that. It's simply a matter of creating it rather than hard coding an enum or having a relational database table. Yeah. Yeah. And so I, I find the reference, I like to lump business logic and reference data into a common category mm. and, and think of them as the same. It's just the business rules get interpreted a little bit differently than, for example, a product code to product description lookup. Richard alluded to this before, that rules can live in different places. Um, they live on the database. You know, mm -hmm. you could say that some of the more fundamental rules of a system are right there in the constraints of your tables. Or, Absolutely. Or, yeah. And, there, and, and some of them, and unfortunately, when choosing what to surface, uh, what, and going, going back to the general tools, so a general tool gives them access to change any business rule anywhere, and there's no constraints and typically no validation around it. Hmm. And that tends to be a recipe for failure in contrast to finding something, some big itch that people just can't scratch or they're waiting on 90-day turnarounds from IT to get changes to these things, and you find that one narrow itch, and that's what you surface for your end users to maintain, as opposed to saying, here's, you know, go build, go build anything, saying, here, go maintain this one very narrow thing, tends to, tends to be a much larger success. So in your papers and your, your talks, you refer to something called the handshake. <laughs> yes. What's that all about? Well, the, the handshake started off, um, you know, like, like most things, being as a corny idea, as a joke. <laughs> but I, uh, basically, when I go through this process with clients of saying, how do I design my business logic? And I have two pieces to that. I have, how do my authors enter the business logic? How do my authors verify that what they entered is going to do, in fact, what they expect? And then on the other side, how do I implement it and execute it? And so in building this, much like you would go through making screenshots uh, for a website and running them by your domain experts to approve them, you build a vocabulary, which is what you is a finite set of language that you have agreed upon with the developer to say, if I describe things in this vocabulary and you can interpret every sort of phrase in that vocabulary, then you know, we can now communicate unambiguously. So this sounds like the normal ritual you go through just getting to know a business as a consultant. Yeah. Absolutely. Oh, yeah, absolutely. I've, I've, I've actually thought that at the end of any requirements gathering session, there should be a hand. I mean, anytime you've agreed that a document is collectively represents the thoughts of more than one person, I think there should be a handshake. Right. Mm. And so once, once, you've, once they've agreed to this vocabulary, and it's, and it's kind of a fun process, and the, my favorite example to use is, the, you know, the subject matter expert wants to get uh, age and birth date. And the developer says, well, no, I'll give you one or the other, and you can calculate. You know, mm -hmm. so if I give you birth date, you know the age. And, and he goes, next thing you know, you're, you're going to want the age at the time of this or at the time of that, and it's going to get all wrapped around the axle. Mm -hmm. And so at the end of this, you have this vocabulary, and then I have them stand up and literally shake hands and agree that the subject matter expert agrees to the best of their knowledge they can convey their intention unambiguously with the vocabulary that we've kind of outlined. And at the same time, the developer, being on the other end of that uh, Turing test, agrees that if, if given that vocabulary in the sense of um, here's, here's the conditions I'd like you to look for and here is the directives for action I'd like you to take, the developer agrees to execute it, and then they shake hands on that. Huh, yeah. And as corny as it is, it's just, it's you know, handshake is, uh, you know, 
the age old 1600s people would spit on their hands and shake hands right. and that was more more important than our contracts today it's the agreement of a protocol yeah exactly yeah but at the same time i'm always fascinated when i'm in that situation to find out the differences in what these people all believe is their business oh you know, yeah you know, a, a classic one, you do all, you always start this conversation with management who tell you what the business is supposed to be doing. And I say it that way because then you go out into the field to do work with the people actually doing it and find out they're doing different things. Oh, yeah, definitely. And and even, I mean, yeah, just across departments, the perception is so different. Sure. And I actually find if you go out and grab the the oldest mainframer at an insurance company and start drinking with them, you'll, that's the best explanation for how their business works. Yeah. What's actually going on? Yeah, yeah, like they know, they know the underwriting policy better than the underwriters for sure. Yeah, with, without a doubt, because it affects them the most. Well, yeah, the guy who's rewritten the system two or three times over the past twenty years. Yeah, right, and has had to actually think about the building blocks at a really low level. And th- and that's yeah, and that's really where that's the difficulty when you work with subject matter experts. They they you know developers think oh they don't get it and. And, you know, subject matter experts think, oh, developers don't get it. You know, they're trying to cram everything into a hierarchy. And, you know, the control of flow and some of the logical inconsistencies and the negative states, you know, the, the handling the else of the if-then is not something that generally occurs to people who aren't programmers. Right. And, and that impedance mismatch, um, you know, causes that, – that's why a lot of these tools, I think, when you hand a workflow tool over to a non-technical person – it doesn't make complete sense because of control of flow is a seamless flow. But the way most things work in the world is you can stop, think about it, and do something else as a person. But when you're automating it, you're forced to articulate all of that. Right. And all, and, and I think you really said the key thing, and all the else's too. Mm. Right. I think that regular mortals, when confronted with all of the else's to a given workflow, just throw their hands up and walk away. This portion of .NET Rocks is brought to you by Telerik JustCode. If you're like me, you're probably using some productivity add-on in Visual Studio to check, refactor, and test your code. But how'd you like to get a complete list of your solution's errors on the fly as you type, and not just for the opened files? The new kit on the block, JustCode, does just that for all supported .NET languages as well as JavaScript. It's like having a compiler running all the time, only that JustCode is faster and requires less CPU time. One area where JustCode is definitely better is performance. The tool provides the fastest code analysis and better performance without slowing down Visual Studio. Another reason to try it is JavaScript support. It'll help you read, navigate, and refactor your JavaScript code better than you've ever imagined. Learn more about the features JustCode offers and download a trial at Telerik.com slash JustCode. And don't forget to thank them for supporting .NET Rocks. So you laid out this architecture where you can separate sort of these resources, static text resources that fill dropdowns, you know, uh, somewhere else and make it easy for people to modify them outside the app so you're not constantly recompiling the application and redeploying Exactly. Is this architecture sort of form the basis of the tools that you've developed, and what do they look like architecturally? Um, well, it's an, it's an interesting. This, the, we actually arrived at our at our product idea sort of by accident. Uh, I, I had a consulting firm 
uh, for about eight or nine years, I guess, before we decided to start Enroll. And we were always doing these applications. And, you know, as a developer, there's about nothing less exciting than maintaining a business logic change, being handed the same requirements document or design spec you've read 40 times, and there's yeah. one page with one paragraph that's different. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, boy, again. Yeah, yeah exactly. That, you know, and that, and, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and that, so out of out of building these applications and you know i think all developers a good development is fundamentally motivated by sheer laziness <laughs> right like subroutine means don't type so much <laughs> yeah and so taking that so we ended up um making these tools starting with websites where we were letting people just edit little chunks of stuff on their website we called them site text and then we gave our clients a little editor so they could change you know the heading on their on their homepage without having to call us to edit their web page. Right. And that morphed into, we also did a lot of financial systems. And the next step from there was saying, well, you know, they're always calling us to edit these formulas. It just seems absurd. Let's instead write a formula parser and then something that can execute those formulas for them. And, and now they can maintain their own formulas. And we kept doing this pattern. And then we got into some really difficult trading systems where we needed some incredible efficiency, you know, streaming data is coming in, and and they have all these calculations, and we built this engine and worked on it, and all of a sudden realized, you know, we have no maintenance revenue as a consulting firm. wonder hmm. why that is. Hmm. Hey, what have we done wrong? Exactly. That's the whole idea is you gouge them in the end, right? <laughs> <laughs> have you been talking to the people who put my roof on last summer? <laughs> Actually, I've heard roof... Why do you say that? I just had my roof repaired, and I heard roofers are the worst of all. They're of them. the worst, man. Yeah. They love to leave you hanging. <laughs> one more thing, uh, just a little thing. Just one more thing. Yeah, and that's and as a consulting firm, that I mean, that was I, I totally get the get get the I get that model, and it's never done. I I don't think it's ever done with uh, malice from the start. I mean, the the people who estimate at least initially believe they're estimating everything. It's just you know that little oversight. Yeah. Well, and, it, and it's always, it feels like a rules engine is too much planning. You know, this, that, that whole Yagni concept of, we, we, you know, we didn't know we needed a rules engine going into this. We're going to get three quarters of the way through the app and realize we're repeating ourselves. And now we're going to have to try and retrofit a rules engine in. Yeah. Right. Well, and, and the design practice that I, that I recommend, um, it, it, it doesn't need, you don't need a rule engine to succeed with it. It's just a, a rule engine offers up some, some really good tooling in the areas of, you know, s defining your vocabulary, giving a tool that your users can use to use it, as well as a tool that they can use to verify and execute it. Are you, um, are, are you into the idea of, uh, software that thinks and deduces and makes suggestions about, uh, about rules? I'm I am into it. That's not that's not what our product does, though. Yeah. But I mean, in terms of my my hobbies, um, I similarity uh, analysis and clustering are two of my favorite things. Well, let's talk about those just for a quick thing because I, sure, I sure. think it's fascinating. Well, the I the I mean, similarity scoring. It's funny, I, and I don't know if you guys are suffering from the same thing, but I now have more digital media than I can possibly handle in terms right. of pictures. Yeah. And, you know, and, and my wife, we just, we just had our, our first child is a month and a day old today. Wow. Great. And, and so, uh, the, the push present for that was a, was a new camera. 
Mm-hmm. And this camera takes pictures <laughs> that are so large, every one of them, I freak out. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I have a terabyte of pictures, you know, and, and right. like, like no time at all. Right. And so in dealing with that, like the, the, one of the things you can do that I wrote is, is a rules-driven uh, tagging system. And so I go through all of my pictures, and I have a straight-up deduper, but the problem with that is once you've added a few tags or recropped something, you now have a different picture. Right. 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 So I, uh, if you're familiar with Aegean vectors, you can go into a picture and sort of pull out some characteristic lines that are in there. Mm. And it's pretty good at then deduping and mapping two pictures to say these are actually the same picture. Um, they're just one slightly cropped a little differently or, or so forth and so on. So between the combination of the two, I've been going through and now I, can, I have all my rules set up for tagging where I can say, um, you know, if it's between such and such a date, tag it as Thanksgiving. If it has so-and-so in it and so-and-so in it, tag it as Good, Goodman family. Wow. And, and as, as well as the similarity. So for my deduping similarity reduction process, I can weed out all the, you know, crappy flower pictures I didn't want, uh, you know, and, 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 and prune them down to one picture of that beautiful plant. Oh, man, you're talking about my mom's entire slide collection from the 70s. <laughs> and she had to pay for all those to be printed. I know. I'm uh, looking through them. Click, uh, more flowers. Click, more flowers. Sorry. So that, does, that doesn't speak to clustering, but I will tell you um, one that I really have. I've been doing this now for about 10 years is I go out and I scrape. So I'm huge into web scraping. Mm. And there's so much free information available from web scraping. It's, it's insane. And so I can turn just about anything into my own database, especially if it's JSON-based. And uh, so I've been going out and tracking all of these. Anytime I find a new technology word or acronym, I put it into my, my scrape list. And every day I go out and I query Google to find out how many pages represent or, or in the page response to that particular term or combination of terms, mm-hmm. and then I track them over time. Wow. And what I can do, and I, actually I'm trying to narrow it to get it just out of blogs versus the whole web, but uh, there's a little noise in that. But what I can do is over time, I can actually, and I've done this predicted trends when you have a page, and then Google has this great thing called Google Trends, which will let you search the search frequency for a particular term, so I've kind of got the supply and demand of here's the demand for this term from search frequency, and then here's the supply for this term for page representation. And by looking at both of them over time, I've, I've been pretty good at coming up with predicting, you know, in a year and a half, this is going to be a hot technology. Wow. That's cool. Just by looking at those frequencies. Yeah, and, and, they, and they jump out. I mean, there, there are terms like Ajax took off like a skyrocket. And there's one, actually, that's taking off, and I have no idea why. Which is uh, the page representation for the phrase "social business," huh? I, and I don't even business. know what it means. I don't know if you guys know what it means. Well, maybe it's a business around social media. Yeah, I, I, I if you Google it or uh, Bing it up, I mean, and yeah. uh, <laughs> and and see, it's it's got it's it doesn't really have a defined term, but people seem to really like that word combination. Social business software just makes them happy. It's an interesting idea all by itself, this thought that here is something that people think is important, even though it may not exist. Yes. That they're searching for something that doesn't yet exist. And and just by them searching on it, I think it will have to exist. Right. It becomes supply, important. Supply and demand. Wikipedia says social business is about a business with a social objective. 
and social media is around organizations designed around social tools, social media, and social networks. But that's just Wikipedia. That page must be really new. Uh, let's see. Because yeah, I don't think I'm getting that one. At least I wasn't a week ago. I, I don't know if it has. Uh, uh, yeah, f- August one. Okay. August first. Hmm. Yeah. <laughs> I just new. missed that. I haven't. I haven't looked at my batch. But yeah, that's. So that page is brand new. So someone else has picked up on that. Seven days ago. Uh, here's another one from Unis Center. Social business is a cause-driven business. Now, well, then again, there's a book called Social Business, which is a book to help operationalize social media. So it's ambiguous. It's interesting, though. I mean, I I was uh, driving my way back from Woodstock, New York, the other night and listening to uh, internet radio. So I'm listening to public radio stations that are somewhere else. And there was this station in Hawaii, and there was a guest on talking about how the brain works and how processes work. And of course, I'm such a computer nerd that when they're talking about these neurons firing and making um, uh, making associations, and uh, one of the things that I thought was fascinating was the he talked about the automatic system versus the uh, reflective system. The automatic system is very easy to demonstrate. Here, I'll do it. If I say, what is a cow drink? Well, that part of your brain that said milk is your automatic system. But then after a couple of seconds, you know, you think about it and you say, ah, well, a cow drinks water. It gives milk. I drink milk from the cow. But Ah. it's all sort of jumbled up in there. And so I thought about that. How would that work in in a piece of software? You know, how would you how would you handle that kind of stuff for a software that is trying to be so-called intelligent that has all this input thrown at it? And that started me down this whole idea of, you know, modeling the psyche with software. And I just came to one conclusion. It's a lot of threads. (laughs) It's a highly parallel system. (laughs) Well, you know, we're, I think we're generally moving in a direction in this conversation around this idea of complex event processing, that there's many different pieces moving at once that rules engines apply to and so forth that ultimately define into a larger concept. Well, that's, that's, that's where, that's where we're going. Um, because that's, I think that's, that's the data warehousing trend of, 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 you know, business logic. Which is, yeah, that's business logic as data warehouse data. That's this interesting idea. What, what does that really mean? Well, just that you have a, you have a, a you have a real time stream of things going on, and and you know the the key of of uh, kind of when we were talking about clustering and classification. The key is getting the right clues so that you can use the human brain to outthink the computer. Mm. Right. You know, the, the computer, the, the goal is you get to be the jury and it, it is, it has to present all of the sides of the case in a, in a compressed format. And so with complex event processing, um, and we have a few names for it, event reasoning and decision event processing, uh, but that you can identify the, the quote situation by a collection of events. So we have, we have a few clients that, that are doing complex event processing within rule and, and one of them is saving an enormous amount of money. Uh, they, they run it, they run, they have a series of their own clinics as well as they have some people roaming around hospitals and then they're also an insurance company. So you sort of buy into this. And one of the things they've done is by listening to every single prescription, every single doctor visit, every single, uh, thing that comes through their system, they can preemptively schedule you, for example, for a diabetes scan. Hmm. 
and in doing so by identifying it a year earlier. And they actually automate the system to the point where it actually makes the appointment for you at one of their clinics and calls you up. Says you need this wow. appointment. Right, exactly. We've decided based on X, Y, and Z that it is worth, you know, our money to pay for this visit because it will ultimately cost us less and give you a higher quality of life. Right. But take, mm. take the same thing and, and you know, um, just any manufacturing and reordering and determining, you know, stock levels, you know, there's a point you want to, you want to have a, a radar of, of stock levels and what does it cost and what's the turnaround time and, you know, do I actually have to talk to the salesman? All those different factors. Hmm. Yeah, are we wandering towards a different approach to expert systems here? I, th- I think I think a hundred percent. And the the expert system, you know, in case based reasoning, and, and as I would define it, is saying I'm going to present a set of facts, and you're going to find me a set of cases which fit it. And then whatever the, whatever the course of action taken on those prior cases that was most effective towards my goal, I'd like you to repeat it. If you'd say, that, if that, you agree on that, because expert mm. systems, one, not everyone agrees on the definition. Right. Yeah. But, yeah. You, but I mean, I think that's part of the problem is that we, we think about the old style expert system, which is much more, I'm going to ask you questions right. and you're going to give me answers. And I'll tell you what's going on. And here is more of the, you know, the, the complex event processing of looking at the stream of data going on and right, making reasonings about that to say, this might be, a, this is a totally unexpected outcome from your perspective, but it's based on the, the, these visible inputs. Mm. Well, and the, the, the complex event processing doesn't have to be reacting to the events in aggregate. Um, you know, so tell me if, if I've had more than six out of stocks on some particular thing, you know, then take this action or the air traffic control example. Those are all sort of aggregating the event. But I also see a huge value for that in instance-based rules. So, for example, let's say I enter my order for a customer, and I know this customer really well. If I can attach a rule to that order that says, if anything in this order goes on back order before it's shipped, I want you to call me. So that way I can call up my customer and say, hey, you know, you know, I watch your orders like a hawk. I know how important you are to me. And I just noticed this one on back order. And so would you rather I ordered this item or the other item? Yeah. And, and sort of letting people put rules around the instance of a piece of data that they care about that's moving through the system. Uh, I think that that's, you know, that's where we can, that's, there's so much power in that. Yep. Yeah. Be- now, now you've got my brain really going because now you've, You've changed my thinking on rules engines. This is not about managing employees directly. The real power here would be managing customer expectations. Well, we start learning how each of our customers react to the different circumstances when we work with them, and we could tweak and tune the rules per customer. Yeah, I actually heard a great story about a call center rule um, where the the the, per, the at the call. So you're at the edge. Someone you know offshore has answered the phone. And your order's going to be late. And in the rule, the the notification in the rule was like, "Sorry, such and such a factory was subject to an earthquake, and that's yeah. where they were putting together your order. So we oh, rerouted man. it. It's going to be being built now in Germany, and it should be there no more than a week late." That's what you got from the call center. That's awesome! Wow. I mean, that is. Just, I mean, think about just getting information to the edge correctly and so narrowed to a context. We've never had technology that facilitates that before. You know, I've gotten calls from um, companies I've ordered products from, and they have said that because I'm a good customer that I get a call. And the guy even said, you know, I see that there's a do not call on your phone because I hate cold calls by sales guys when they have a special or whatever. 
But he said, and I hope you don't mind, I called you because this thing is not in stock and it's not going to ship. Uh, you're not going to get it in the time that you asked for. Yeah. But, uh, uh, and I was impressed. And I'm usually not impressed by salespeople. <laughs> <laughs> but, you know, it, it, what I'm getting excited about is this idea that as I'm using my CRM system, you know, we're learning more about in, interacting with a given customer. You start altering your behavior to the way that would please that particular customer. Right. That this customer would rather get an email than a call about a particular thing. That they'd rather, they're willing to wait if they can pay less. You know, right. different people react different ways. There's That's stuff right. I'm willing to wait for, stuff I'm not. And and if you can, as my uh, business relationship, learn more about that and codify that in a way that it just naturally gets better, mm. there's, you know, your customer loyalty. Yeah. These guys know how I like things handled, and they remember. And right That's now, good. you know, so many of these systems, it's just notes. Right. And it should yeah. be rules. And the problem is that, the notes don't even persist from person to person. You know, somebody new will come in uh, three months later, and you you got to tell your whole story all over again. Yeah, simple stuff. Well, I've, I've seen that's funny. I've seen it at a credit card company. The most amazing tribal folklore language for how they encode everything in the notes. Yeah, and it's solely invented by the call center people to yeah. communicate with each other. Wow. But you bring I, up with, with the with the CRM stuff. That's actually an area we we've got. Um, some stuff going on with a product that'll that'll uh, integrate naturally to Dynamics and let you start putting those rules, uh, you know, end author created rules directly in, and then they execute against the Dynamics data. At Franklin's Net right now, you can get a DVD with over 11 hours of Billy Hollis on Silverlight 4 or 14 hours of Sahil Malik on SharePoint 2010, each for only $6.95. Order online at www.franklins.net. Are you looking to change jobs? Infusion Development has offices in New York City, Toronto, London, Dubai, and Poland. Infusion has hired a whole handful of Happy.net Rocks listeners. Contact me for an introduction at carl at franklins.net. One of my favorite experiences around this was uh, I, you know, I really use laptops. I travel constantly and I'm hard on laptops, and when they break, I need them fixed immediately. And I, and you have to go through the tiers of tech support every time. And I finally got through to that third tier guy who was, and I'm like, no, I can't wait. You need to ship these parts to this hotel for this thing. And he gets ready to argue with me. And then he stops. He says, I just read the notes and realized you've won this argument every time you've had it for the past <laughs> two years. I'm just going to ship it to you. That's, I'd love to have like a, a technical quality. That's awesome. It's like every time the cable goes out, I have to call and they're like, okay, unhook your router. I'm like, I understand. I know where the problems, no. Well, exactly. We Shouldn't they be learning? Hey, this guy never calls until there's really a problem. It's kind of He's right. done all the dumb stuff. It's kind of like being a Microsoft business partner. Oh, <laughs> did I say that? Did I say that out loud? <laughs> oh, boy. But, that's it. It to me that seems like a really original application of rules engines to accumulate data about how your customer behaves so that you can actually serve them faster and better. Mm. It'll ultimately save you money. Yeah. Well, I, I mean, others, others. I mean, it's so funny. I, I try and think of all the places I've used them, but even I have rules that if I'm on a web page for more than a certain amount of time, I save a copy of it off. Right. You know, and and I could just as easily add keywords in around that, but. Uh, I mean, I just think rules are, there are so many places where someone's sitting there going, God, why can't I just self-servicely do this? Right. 
why do I have to go through another, you know, if I'm driving by and all of a sudden I forgot, oh, I need to pick up something at Radio Shack, I can turn the car and go get it. But with software, we're stuck on that road and we can't right. go get it, even yeah. though we know how and we know what we want. Yeah. Right. Here comes your series of modal dialogues. Enjoy. (laughs) (laughs) Which also cleared out the clipboard for some reason. (laughs) For your convenience. For your convenience, we're going to force you down the path. Oh, man, it's great. So what is next, Lauren? What do you look, you know, it seems to me that a lot of this kind of computing has been very batch oriented that we take today, you know, yesterday's data and start grokking it together to look at new rules. Is stream the future here? You know, to me, it seems like CEP has all been about trying to process the stream, but I don't know that it's actually important. I, I, I actually, I think that that really is, is the future is, is listening to any, invent in the enterprise and service buses are, are moving that along mm. very, very well for us. Yeah. But I mean, me- message, message, message based is the true core of computing. I mean, that even as a programmer, we enter instructions and the computer carries them out. Yet we haven't ever really raised that abstraction out of code. And I right. think that's, that's what's really next is, I mean, it's, it's all self-service. And just you look at ATMs, and I remember, you know, my grandparents saying they would never go get money from a machine, or you could look at microwaves, or even, you know, operating an elevator. You used to have a dude who stood in the elevator to drive you up and down. Yep. And and self-service is, is once we're sufficiently familiar with something that we recognize the risks, you know, that we're taking on, then we can, then there's no reason to have that interim, trans, you know, trans, transformation by another person. There isn't a second mind involved to solve the problem. You disintermediate, and so that's why I, I look at just rule, rule, the embedded a lot of our a lot of our stuff. Well, I should say all of our stuff, but um, you can embed inside of your own application. So that at the bottom of a, you know, if you're setting up a mortgage product, just at the bottom of the screen, there's some pricing rules and discount rules. To the end user, they don't even know they're working in a rule engine. You know, it's it's simply just another box they're filling out, which happens right. to be the rules about what are the discounts on this mortgage for various groups. Yeah, I mean, one would argue that if you could tell you're in a rules engine, they failed. Yes. Because that's not how regular people think. Right. And and, and the, the thing rule engines initially were solving aren't the real problem. The real problem is just the unambiguous expression of intent. Right. And that's where our, our, our focus has all really been on the vocabulary and playback. You know, there's, it's one thing for someone to write a requirements document, but... How often is that ever played back to them to say, other than making making what it says it wants, but playing it back to say, I get it? And that, well, and when you have that conversation, like you say, getting to the handshake is really about making sure you can repeat back to me what I said to you, and we agree on it. Right. But I I think the written form or the spoken form of that's only good between humans. The ability to articulate that set of information to the machine is a different problem. Right, but it's, I, I think it's layers of abstraction such that, in effect, you're building a language for your domain users to use, which has risks they're willing to accept and carries out, you know, it, it, instead of carrying out 100% of their flexibility, it carries out 80%. But that other 20% would have thrown them over the cliff. Right. Well, and, Metaf- Metaphorically speaking. But so many of these kinds of tools run out of steam after the 80%. It's very hard to deliver the last piece. And, and I'm not sure that, that putting our energy on that last piece 
is where the value proposition is at. Right. I, I can put gas in my car. I, if I really wanted to, I could probably figure out how to put oil in my car, and I can put that blue stuff in. But <laughs> if, if something beyond that is wrong, I don't need to self-service that. There's a point at which there's diminishing returns based on the complexity of the problem space that you're trying to self-serve. Yeah. And what these tools that don't focus on vocabulary, like um, Udi Dahan just had a, a great write-up um, blasting uh, workflow engines. Because so many people hand over the workflow engine to their end users, and they, you know, it's a train wreck. And that's sure. because they tried to make everything flexible instead of saying, hey, you know what, the two things you need, you need to put gas in, you need to put oil in, you want to tune the radio. Hmm. Those are the three boxes you get in your workflow. And yeah, and that, and there's a level of responsibility there. You have to decide what makes it. You do, I feel the same way about query by example and, and uh, you know, user report writers. They're always a disaster. Not a great example. Yeah. It's a it's a cop out by the developer to not actually solve the hard problem. Mm. But they, when they work, I mean, so the, where those fail is the, they want to print out the the receipt right that goes in the box that they ship, and in that receipt they want a background image and maybe the, another image in the corner and a you know all this stuff that's outside of the design of the report writer. Right. And that's that last twenty percent. That just complicates the report writer so much to give them that instead of just picking the columns. Yeah, the thing that they most of the time needed to do. Right. So can we talk briefly about um, the architecture of the in-rule tools and, and why you chose to uh, develop them that way? Um, sure, absolutely. Uh, the, I mean, the, the architecture is really it's broken into three major camps, which is, is authoring, storage, and execution. So we have an authoring tool that you would install where you can go in and you, you create a rule application, which is a, is a collection of two things. It's a collection of your state or the definition of your state as well as a collection of your rules. So whenever you're going to run rules, you need two things. You need rules and you need state to run them against. And so by you define your state, which in effect is your vocabulary. And then when you are finished authoring, you go into a verification tool, which if you can think of Excel, if you've ever been trying to make like a really hairy expression in Excel, you end up putting it in like six different cells in a row. And then once those are each individually working, you sort of regroup them. Yeah. I don't know if you've had that experience, but sure. the, the, uh, so you're working in this authoring tool and you're sort of refining and a, and a large part of that is, is running these rules over your own test data. Did this do what I expected based on this data? Did this work? Did this, that? When you're all said and done, now we move to the second set of the architecture, which is storage. So I've made my rules. I verified they are correct. Now I send them off to this catalog, which is sort of my central business logic catalog, where I store them. Inside of there, you have versioning and publishing and revisions so that you can choose if you want to have a workflow around how rules get into production. I mean, a, a bless and a curse of business rules is 30 seconds later, I can change your pricing on your website. <laughs> True. <laughs> That's not always a good thing. <laughs> right? So how do you work through QA? And then we have the execution piece. So now at runtime, you have the actual state that you want to run against, and you connect to that set of rules and say, I want, I want to create an entity of this kind, and I want to run these rules over it, and then take action based on the result of the rules. Hmm. So we kind of have those three pieces in the architecture, and then they can either all run in process or run as a service, okay. depending on, on how you wanted to set it up. And, and there are other cases where people 
uh, generate the rules at runtime themselves based on other bodies of metadata. And I mean, there's a whole lot of other flavors, but the three core architectural concepts are sort of authoring, uh, storage and management, and then execution. And there's a whole bunch of, as you say, there's a whole bunch of options in terms of where things persist and right. and how they're accessed. Right. And how, I mean, if you, if you want to, if, um, the sort of, you can have a flavor of authoring, which we call embedded authoring. So in some, in some products, inside of the product is the in-rule authoring tool. And so it's not a separate installation or anything like that. It's just sort of baked directly inside. Uh, but at the end, no matter what, eventually you have a tool that's facing the person who, who has their intent in their head and, and, and the authoring tool is the tool that encodes it. So did this architecture come out of just years of hard knocks and working with tools like this yourself, as you say, from your consulting practice? Yeah. Um, I mean, it's, we, we made, we made the, we made initial, you know, it was never as polished and wonderful as it is today, but we made incarnations of this to solve problems we really had. Yeah. And to, to make our lives easier and, and realize, well, you know, there's a lot of other people who have the same problem. And then to find out that under the hood, the algorithms were actually this camp of the same thing everyone else is calling a rule engine. Well, that's kind of neat. And so we sort of then said, let's make a product company and uh, have sort of have taken it from there. Yeah, that's great. And it's been successful for you? Yeah, yeah. It's, uh, you know, product companies is definitely difficult at the start compared to consulting. Sure. Um, uh, consulting, you work an hour, you get paid for an hour, yeah. usually. <laughs> and yeah. uh, with product, you work an hour, and then you sort of wait, hope the phone rings. <laughs> so that part of it's a little more difficult. But yeah, we've we've been we've been growing steadily. We're growing through the recession, and uh, have been demonstrating you know, a lot of savings for clients. Do you think this is a good question? Because we see that um, people buy more developer tools when the economy gets bad. Do you think uh, the, the this is a recession-proof kind of business? Do you think that most developers would look to a rules engine or even building a rules engine uh, to to save money? You know, it depends on the mindset of the developers, but uh, definitely, uh, I, I think the developers are a very large camp of of how we find our way into into customers, and and based on that desire to you know, to recognize these ongoing changes they've been making could be outsourced. And, and under, you know, it's, it, people really don't know the technology that well. It's not that familiar. And I always liken it to data warehousing that, you know, in 94, who really knew what data warehousing was? Mm. Right. And, and who knew that, oh, wait a minute, so you're saying it's just an automated system. Instead of having my own transformation from my transaction tables to my own reporting tables and my own reporting tool, these guys saw that common pattern and made a tool that does both the transformation, the hosting, and the reporting. Perfect. But basically, until you see it running, I mean, once people see it, it's, it's like a done deal. But until they actually see it and realize, oh, wow, it really does do just this one thing really well, you know, it's not, it's not, we're not getting rid of all of our analysts. We're not getting rid of any developers. We're not doing all of these things that are associated with it. It's, it's not a hive mind that's going to mm-hmm. hijack my company. Right. You know, it's it's these narrowly scoped chunks of business logic being execute, executed by the developer and defined directly by the subject matter expert. Very good. So, what's on the horizon for for you and for InRule and your products? What's what do you got uh, in the radar? Um, well, definitely uh, the complex event processing and going after I think much more 
um, vertically integrated solutions. Hmm. So right now we we sell we sell the the rule infrastructure, but there's there's a demand for the rules themselves, and I and I'm curious if a marketplace will evolve for that. Um, you know, taking a look at you know if I had a nickel for every customer that has entered the Fannie Mae Freddie Mac rule set, right. Um, actually, we probably do have a nickel for every one of the <laughs> But like, so the the rule set itself, it's an interesting thing. Uh, if that can be something that that people start selling, and the other thing is this is this idea of a decision service, so that you have a self serve way of going out and declaring a sort of using, a, if you can envision sort of a wizard kind of metaphor, but declaring your own decision service saying, given these inputs and these outputs, um, I, you know, I, I will, I will do this type of business logic for you. Hmm. So for you know, say someone wants uh, options pricing, some college kids, the master of it, they could go publish this decision service and sell it on a per use basis. Yeah. Or even inside the enterprise, uh, someone wants to be advised, you know, what to eat for lunch that day. They could, you know, set up a decision service and use it, but that those services then become first-class citizens, you know, in the service bus enterprise. It's sort of like a hyper query kind of thing. I mean, you think of, yeah. think of it like a queryable database over the web, um, but with, but with logic behind it. Very, it's, it's like, it's that's a really good way of describing it. It's, uh, like a living, like right now we have SharePoint in these static documents. Mm. Well, what if we could just, you know, instead of trying to articulate all the cases in a static document, instead I could say, just tell me these things and then I'll tell you what to do. Yeah. And, and sort of a, a, a living, a living document. Very cool. Very cool. Well, Lauren, thank you very much for spending this time with us. And man, it is the, it's just been fascinating stuff. And uh, I wish you continued success within Rule and, and everything you're doing personally. Oh, thank you very much. And, and Richard and Carl, this has been, has been really fun and engaging. And uh, as you guys already know, .NET rocks. Yes, it does. <laughs> it certainly does. <laughs> All right. And we'll see you next time on the show called .NET Rocks. .NET Rocks is recorded and produced by Pwop Productions, providing professional audio, audio mastering, video, post-production, and podcasting services. Online at www.pwop.com. .NET Rocks is a production of Franklin's Net, training developers to work smarter and offering custom on-site classes in Microsoft development technology with expert developers. Online at www.franklins.net. For more .NET Rocks episodes and to subscribe to the podcast feeds, go to our website at www.dotnetrocks.com. Got a transmitter band by the FCC, and some are 